Hello and welcome to another episode of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Sylvia Leatham and with me in studio today are Lenny Antonelli and Connor Farrell. You can find us online at cybernia.ie, that's S-C-I-B-E-R-N-I-A dot I-E, or download the latest episode from iTunes and you can always email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. Coming up on the show today, do you believe in alien abductions, haunted houses, or telepathy? Many people do believe in paranormal activity, and to tell us about the psychology behind such beliefs is Chris French, a man who recently challenged TV psychic Sally Morgan to prove her abilities. Also on the show, we find out about Europe's new satellite navigation system, and how children in Ireland can get involved in naming the satellites. Plus, we get a preview of Science Week, a week-long festival of science events taking place around the country. Many of you will have heard of the recent controversy surrounding Sally Morgan, a performer who calls herself Britain's best-loved psychic. After doubts about her psychic abilities were raised by callers to RTE's Joe Duffy show in September, Sally Morgan was challenged to prove her supernatural powers in a test designed by our next interviewee, Chris French, a psychologist from the UK's Goldsmiths University. French was in Dublin last week giving a talk about why some of us believe in paranormal activity. Marie Boren caught up with him to ask him about the psychology of alien abductions, haunted houses and telepathy. Well, basically, anomalistic psychology focuses on trying to come up with non-paranormal explanations for ostensibly paranormal experiences. Um, It doesn't take a hard line whereby we say, we know that paranormal forces don't exist, and so we do spend some of our time directly testing paranormal claims. But as a work, an underlying working hypothesis is the kind of question of, well, if paranormal forces don't exist, how can you explain this whole range of ostensibly paranormal phenomena? You know, everything from precognitive dreams to telepathy, psychokinesis, the whole lot. And then trying to come up with possible explanations. And then importantly, actually trying to test those explanations. Because I mean, armchair sceptics can kind of come up with all kinds of superficially plausible explanations but we don't actually know whether they're true or not and i think so you're applying rigorous science to that's, this. What that's what we're trying yeah. to do yeah and we want to be able to say you know not only have we got a plausible explanation but we've actually tested it and we've got some support for it if it is something that can be explained in a scientific manner, why do so many people believe in ghosts and alien abductions and dousing and bleeding statues and what have you, everything like that? And there's lots of different factors that play into that. Um, one very kind of basic reason is just that people find it exciting and interesting. You know, I mean, I used to be a believer. I'm still a big fan of science fiction, you know. The idea that... Um, there is this kind of other, these other possibilities that go beyond normal everyday existence. A lot of people find that very kind of exciting, and we would like it to be true. I think at a more fundamental level, one of the most basic motivations relates to our own fear of our own mortality. Um, you know, none of us, atheists, believers, skeptics, whatever, none of us likes the idea that we've got a very limited time on this earth, that when we die, that's it. And you know, certainly the idea that those that we love 
when they die, that's it. We'll never see them again. We'll never have contact with them again. That's a very painful thought. So we'd all like to believe in some kind of post-mortem existence. And uh, just down to basic confirmation bias, you know, we find it much easier to believe in things that we want to be true anyway. The evidence doesn't have to be all that convincing in order to make us believe it. So we get a lot of emotional satisfaction from those kinds of beliefs. We'll never, ever... And I'm not really in the business of trying to eliminate those beliefs. They'll always be with us. You know, people have weird experiences that they take as being evidence for the paranormal. Um, but even the people who don't have the experiences, they'll still buy into that belief system because it's got all kinds of positive psychological benefits for them. And now, you have talked before about the fact that some people are more susceptible to believing in the paranormal than others. What does this mean? Is it a kind of personality type? And there are personality factors that play into this whole question. There is, there is a certain kind of constellation of interrelated personality factors that seem to be relevant. What we've got is a situation where it doesn't necessarily mean that if you score high on these measures that you'll be a believer or that if you score low you'll be a sceptic. But there are definite differences between believers and sceptics as a group. So believers tend to be more fantasy prone, they tend to be more uh, hypnotically susceptible, they tend to be more likely to score highly on measures of dissociativity, they'll have altered states of consciousness, maybe more out-of-body experiences, missing time experiences. They'll be a little bit more spacey, or away with the fairies, as my grandmother would have said. They'll often be very creative individuals. I mean, they'll have a very, this very rich fantasy life they've got. They've got very good imagination. So there are kind of positive aspects too. Um, they'll be less reliant on logic and rationality and more intuitive and more going with their emotions and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a big generalisation, though, you know, as I say, we're talking about group differences here. And then there are underlying cognitive factors as well. Um, just in terms of our survival as a species, you know, we, we, one of the reasons we are so successful is that we're very good at picking up on meaningful patterns in our environment, on making, on cause and effect relationships and so on. But we generally do that on the basis of heuristics, quick and dirty rules of thumb that are usually right, usually give us the right answer, but under certain conditions can actually systematically give us the wrong answer. But again, if you think about this in evolutionary terms, it makes sense to have cognitive systems that are quick, dirty, fast and usually right rather than relying upon more reflective, rational approach that might be right slightly more often but gives you a lot more chance to be eaten by a sabre-toothed tiger while you're making your mind up. You're not going to sit there and weigh up all the pros and cons. You're just going to run Absolutely. and assume the worst is going to yeah. happen. Yep. Um, so people that will are more susceptible to this kind of belief, a lot of those people might have attended the recent Psychic Sally event in Dublin. This has been in the news, it's very big. You have written about it yourself in The Guardian. What do people believe Psychic Sally to be doing? And you've challenged this some way, haven't you? Well, um, as you'll be aware, and as your listeners will probably be aware, um, Sally appeared here in Dublin, um, and... There were then various allegations made that she was possibly being fed information um, via a hidden earpiece. Now, whether she was or whether she wasn't, we can't say with certainty on the basis of that evidence. It was very reminiscent of uh, the Reverend Peter Popoff, who back in the mid-80s definitely used that technique to be fed information. 
And so what we have decided is that if Sally would like to settle the controversy, that uh, we, we being uh, myself, Simon Singh and the Merseyside Skeptics, um, would be more than happy to, uh, well we already have issued a, a challenge to Sally, that if she wants to show that she really does have these abilities, then we have this very simple test. During her stage shows, she very often takes photographs from members of the audience and she does readings based on those photographs. We have ten photographs of deceased individuals. We have ten first names that correspond to those photographs and all we'd wanted to do is to match the names to the photographs. We think that that is a very fair and very simple test if she really does have psychic ability. And if she gets 10 out of 10, what are you going to say to her? <laughs> if she gets 10 out of 10, we will say congratulations. We will be fairly gobsmacked. She doesn't have to get 10 out of 10, however. Uh, I think the cutoff that we decided on was uh, 7 out of 10. Um, and if she passes this test, then she would be deemed to be able to go forward for the formal $1 million challenge that the James Randi Educational Foundation have on offer. If she's not happy with the test as we've proposed it, then we're quite happy to sit down with her and to work out a test that she considers to be uh, more appropriate, as long as we can retain proper experimental control. As long as it's scientifically rigorous. Absolutely. Yeah. As long as that's achieved, we will try and come up with a test that she's happy with. So, so watch this space. We're going to see if, she, if Sally's really psychic. <laughs> we are going to see, whether she, first of all, whether she accepts the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and then if she does, well, yeah. Maybe, maybe she's really psychic. If she, if she is, this is a golden opportunity for her to prove it. If you've ever used a sat-nav system in a car or used Google Maps on your phone to get directions, then you've used a technology called GPS or Global Positioning System. GPS is a satellite navigation system originally developed by the US military. But now Europe is developing its own system for satellite navigation. And the EU is calling on children across Europe to get involved in a competition to name these satellites. To tell us more about this now is Connor Farrell from Astronomy Ireland. Connor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sylvia. Um, first of all, I guess we should talk about how GPS actually works, GPS and other satellite navigation sure. systems. Yeah. Well, each satellite system will, be, will, will have an atomic clock on board. Now, that's uh, a type of clock that's extremely, extremely accurate. Clocks that we have at home and stuff will slightly go out of time, maybe by a couple of minutes each year, but these will stay pretty exact for hundreds of years, if not thousands. Okay, so we have a really accurate timer we do, as yeah. part of the system. So then the okay. satellite will broadcast uh, a radio signal down to Earth, and on that signal, it will have the exact time that the signal was broadcast, but it'll also have the position of the satellite uh, on its orbit as it travels around Earth. So then we've got the second part of this, which is a receiver on the ground, which would be your sat-nav system in a car. That's going to pick up the signal and that can calculate exactly when the signal was received. So now you've got two different times. You've got the time it was sent and the time it was received. And by using a little bit of maths, you can work out exactly how far away that satellite is. Your receiver you is probably going to get signals from maybe five, six or seven satellites at one time. So oh, it combines all these systems and you get a very, very accurate uh, pinpoint on your location. Oh, okay. I finally understand that now. That's, that's a good start. Um, so GPS is just one type of satellite navigation system, it but it's not the only one, I believe. It's uh, not the only one, no. GPS is the most popular one. It's, it's run by uh, the USA, 
but um, the Russians also have their own system called GLONASS and I believe that China and India are also uh, developing their own system as well. Uh, but the one that's obviously important to us is the Galileo system. Now, that's being built by Europe and um, that's actually in development at the moment. Okay, and why are we presumably spending lots of money on developing our own satnav system? Why don't we just keep using GPS? That's a very good question. Um, the main reasons behind that are largely political. Um, a lot of people will remember the Cold War when we had a couple of superpowers kind of at each other's uh, throats. Now, if it was the case that that ever happened again, one of these superpowers, whether it was the USA or Russia, they could switch off the GPS systems. But that would leave the rest of the world without GPS access. So even if there was a country who who wasn't involved in any conflict, they'd obviously have to suffer the consequences there as well. So um, Europe decided that we don't want to depend on on the US. We want to have our own system. We want to be able to just, just rely on ourselves for this. And of course, um, you see, if there ever was a conflict uh, in that case, then if the US did decide to switch off their own system, it would then mean that the, their enemy, I suppose, would have access to the European system. And the Americans didn't really like this, so so there was a bit of uh, political tension there. And the Americans did try to, to, to prevent uh, the Galileo system, but they uh, negotiated that out and they ironed out the creases. So it's actually uh, going to go ahead now. Oh, okay. Yeah, but then again, there are a couple of uh, big differences as well. It's not just about politics. Um, the American system was uh, developed mainly for military use, uh, as I mentioned. And the secondary use, which is what we'd use for in, in, in cars, is actually secondary. And that actually has to be paid for by the by the supplier, say. Um, that's why when you buy a car, I guess, like a sat-nav system would make it a bit more expensive. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the Galileo uh, system is actually going to be free to use. Okay, oh. so so that's 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 really available uh, to 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 anyone, but obviously to get the really really accurate results, there will be a charge there. Okay, so um, it could be like premium <coughs> use, maybe. Exactly, exactly. Um, so when will we see Galileo in action? Uh, it's actually already started. Um, a couple of weeks ago, on October the twenty first, uh, the first two satellites uh, were launched. There had been a couple of satellites launched previous to that, and but they were just test satellites. These ones are the in orbit validation satellites. So I suppose they're they're a test of 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 the real system. Okay. okay so once those initial tests uh, take place then they're going to set up the rest uh, of the satellites. There's going to be 27 satellites in total, so so those are the first two. And then um, once those initial tests are finished, the remaining 25 uh, will be sent up. Now, as well as that, there's also going to be three backup satellites, so that'll actually leave 30 satellites in, in total in orbit. Okay. You know, So um, they're going to be very far away as well. They're going to be in orbit 23,200 kilometres uh, above Earth's surface, so, so that's... It's pretty so far away. A long way away, I see. Yeah. Um, so you said there was going to be 27 satellites and uh, there are, of course, 27 countries in the EU. Is it one satellite per country? It kind of is, in a way. Um, the programme is actually developed by the European Union in conjunction with the European Space Agency. Now, as it happens, Ireland is a member of both. Um, it's one satellite per country insofar as that each country uh, is going to get to name one of these satellites. 
Okay. Mm. So uh, the first two satellites have already been named. There was uh, were the satellites that were launched uh, on October twenty first, and they were named uh, Natalia, who is named after a girl from Bulgaria, and the other satellite is named Thies, I think it's pronounced, and that's after a boy from Belgium. Um, so what happens there is um, they were actually named after those kids who took part in the European Commission's Galileo drawing competition. Oh, so okay. uh, the idea uh, behind that is is people all over Europe, well, all kids all over Europe, can get involved with this uh, uh, competition, submit their artwork, and and the satellite will be named after them or oh. after the winner, hopefully. Oh, okay, that sounds very nice. So how can Irish kids then get involved? Yeah, well. Um, it is open to children. Um, once you're between 7 and 11 years old, uh, okay. you can enter. You don't have to be part of, of um, a school group or anything. You can do it on your own if you wish. Um, all you need to do is think up of a picture or drawing based on space and aeronautics. And that's to do with rockets, astronauts, satellites, all that sort of space travel kind of thing. And draw anything that you can put your mind to, anything that you can think of. You can use pens, colouring pencils, paints, oil paintings, anything you want. Then when your work is finished, you can scan it or you can take a photograph of it and then you upload it to www.galileocontest.eu. Okay, so Galileo, that's G-A-L-I-L-E-O contest.eu. That's correct, yeah. Uh, Now, you will have to do that by November the 15th. That is the closing date. Okay, um, so get the pencils out. So get the pencils out, absolutely. As quickly as possible. And um, then in each country, uh, it's going to be um, judged by a panel um, and they're often very well-known people um, in their respective countries. And in Ireland, uh, the panel is actually going to include David Moore from uh, Astronomy Ireland, my colleague, and, of course, the well-known artist Don Conroy. Oh, right, yes, he so, of, the, uh, of the den. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Great, that sounds fantastic, Conor. Thanks a million for Thank coming in. Thank you very in. much. What lasts 10 years and takes a week? It's Science Week, a festival of events taking place around the country from the 13th to the 20th of November. This annual happening, featuring hundreds of events for adults as well as children, has been on the go for a decade now. And this year the theme is the chemistry of life. I met up with Science Week organiser Donna McCabe from Discover Science and Engineering to find out more about what to expect. Donna McCabe, thanks for talking to me today. Can you tell us a bit about Science Week? What's it all about? Um, well, it's uh, I guess it's a it's a celebration of science. Really, it's um, our big awareness program um, that Discover Science and Engineering. It's it's our key event of the year, um, and it's growing and growing every year. So last year we had um, about five hundred events happening and a participation of about a hundred thousand people. So um, of course this year we're hoping we can beat that or at least uh, sustain it and. Um, Every year we, we come up with a theme. So this year the theme um, is the chemistry of life. So that's really tying in with the International Year of Chemistry. Um, and of course when we when we were looking at what theme to do and we, we thought of chemistry, we thought, okay, well, how are we going to bring that uh, to life for people? Mm-hmm. But when we sat down and went through our different ideas for the theme, actually there were a large number of, the, of different sort of elements of that that we were able to look into and to pull a programme together. So we were working with lots of different partners on, on doing that. 
So what kind of events are going to be taking place then? And I believe they're taking place all over the country. Yeah, well, there's lots of regional festivals, um, which is fantastic. I mean, the role that DSE actually plays in this is because, of course, we don't organise 500 events ourselves. We couldn't do that. Um, we very much connect with local community and regional festivals. So there is um, things happening. There's a regional festival in Cork, which is called Discovery. Um, and they have everything from school events to family days. Um, that's running from the 7th to the 19th, Galway Science and Technology Festival as well. That runs for two weeks. Um, Mayo have their own Science and Technology Festival. Um, Sligo as well have a, a, quite a large um, programme of events happening. And there's lots of other things happening across like Limerick and Roscommon and Donegal. Um, there's a new element to it this year in Lismore, which is the Robert Boyle Science Festival as well. So while we connect with the ITs, we also work with some of the universities and very much with the libraries as well. So everybody from a school, a primary school, doing a class quiz to a major um, public outreach event in one of the universities. Um, it, it's all recorded basically through the website and on, on the diary of events there and that's how we track what's happening. So pretty much DSE coordinates what's happening and, and provides advice, um, free merchandise uh, and basically tries to get as many people involved doing something no matter how small it is. Um, ourselves we do um, a small number of outreach events where we put about, I think we have probably about 30 different um, roadshow events happening that is specifically going into the ITs and connecting with um, primary schools and secondary schools doing science outreach shows. But we also have a lecture series that's happening as well this year, which is very much reflecting the theme of the chemistry of life. Okay, and is there anybody exciting speaking at this lecture series? Yeah, we have... um, First of all, we have we have two day time or three day time events, and they're very much targeting um, second level students with I suppose with the a careers hat on, if you like. So with the theme of um, chemistry of life, we have Dolores O'Riordan who's talking about um, food science. She'd be quite well known as well. So she's talking about um, bioactive ingredients and uh, the anal- analysis of food, and basically looking at, at food science, which and that'll be talking to students as well and trying to really encourage them to look at that as an area to go into for in terms of careers. So this isn't the same Dolores Reardon from the Cranberries? No, no, it's not. It's not. I had to check that out, though, <laughs> just to be sure she hadn't changed careers. Um, and then we have um, a, a Dr. John O'Shaughnessy is from the Guard. Um, he is from the Forensic Science Laboratory in the Phoenix Park, and he's doing a talk on um, crime scene investigation and the role that chemistry obviously plays in that. And again, that's to students and, and, and talk to them in terms of career opportunities there. Um, and from for the evening events that we have we have two um, key evening events that are open to the public all the ticketing by the way is, is completely free but obviously we, we just get people to sort of send us through how many tickets they want and we reserve tickets and they're in different venues um, but they're all all the details for that are up on the Science Week website um, that's scienceweek.ie, is it? Yeah, yeah scienceweek.ie indeed. Um, we have um, Professor Luke O'Neill from the School of Immunology in Trinity College um, who's going to be doing a talk as well on immunology and the role of chemistry in that and control of um, uh, disease prevention and that kind of thing. So that should be really good. Luke's a really, really good speaker as well. Um, and we also have uh, Christer, if I can say his name correctly, <laughs> Christer Fuchelsang, who is uh, an ESA astronaut. And he's doing two. He's doing a daytime talk to students about basically career as a space astronaut for ESA. And he's, his evening lecture is going to be um, looking at a series of um, experiments that were carried out on the International Space Station that he did called Exposure. 
which was basically looking at um, simple life forms and their um, how how they're affected in space and a, a series of experiments that they carried out in space as well. So that's really interesting. And we'll be filming the, the lectures as we do every year so that anyone who can't make it to the event can watch it online later on at a, at a later date. Ooh, that's great. That the astronaut talk sounds very interesting. Yeah. And I believe you already have hundreds of events up on your website. And do any in particular stand out for you apart from the lecture series? Um, yeah, well, the lecture series obviously we think is very important. <laughs> and we um, certainly all the regional festivals. I mean, there's lots going on, not just in Dublin. So um, that's really important that people kind of look and see what's happening locally to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's great on the website is there's an interactive map. So you can actually go in and look at a map of Ireland see your county and have a look and see what's closest to you if there's not something happening immediately in your town you can see where the nearest place is that that's where something might be happening um one of the kind of key things as well that we're um we've been working with um a physics lecturer called Kevin Nolan who released a book um a little while ago on Mars is doing a series of lectures as well around the country which is um Mars science it's Mars science laboratory in search of origins and he's doing a very multi-visual um, audiovisual talk series of lectures and he's doing that around the country as well yeah. and that I think is something that will be really really interesting and again I mean it was for us it was trying to put a program together that sort of uh, I suppose spans the scope of the chemistry of life so we've tried to um, I mean there's a lot of I suppose academic things that are happening but we're trying to put a bit of fun into it as well so um, everything from getting the rubber bandits involved and helping us talk about mm. chemistry to you know more serious um, careers talks or, or lecture series as well so. I saw that Rubber Bandits video on your website. It's yeah. very funny. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, we did a, a, a sort of a focus group with um, a couple of, or sorry, a couple of four uh, young people that we work with from time to time who were really great in sort of fe- helping us to put together what's, what's, you know, of interest or what, what could we do to try and capture or engage with a younger audience, with second level audience. And, and the first thing was, well, can we, can you do stuff with explosions? And the second thing was rubber bandits. So we said, <laughs> okay, well, well, the explosions we might have to try and, uh, you know, avoid. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens there. And then with the rubber bandits, we, we uh, met with them and had a talk. We went out for the day and did Vox Pop. Um, filming with just basically stop people on the street and ask them um, what chemistry means to them in their everyday life and which we expected most of the responses were um, you know well I don't know what you're talking about and then we said to people okay well you know if you uh, if you think about like beauty products or medication phone in your pocket fuel in your car you know what when you think about it it plays a, it's it's vital to everything that it touches on everything you do every day so what could you not live without and then of course we got a totally mixed reaction to, to those questions and then ask people um, if nobody studied chemistry anymore what would where would we be or what would happen in the future so that was really interesting actually we met some really interesting people and got a, all kinds of reactions from different age groups and different backgrounds and everything so the, the rubber bandits part of it um, was really really fun it was brilliant to do that and the clips are hilarious and it was good to kind of um, put that through the, the videos so that people kind of want to watch it to the end you know mm. especially for, for trying to get teenagers to watch the video through the end four minute video on YouTube can be quite long <laughs> really you know so all of that footage rubber bandits and all is uh, on your website right now it is yeah and we have a dedicated YouTube channel which is youtube.com forward slash DSE video okay that's brilliant thanks a million Donna no problem thanks And it's that time of the show when we take a look at events that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. So Lenny is here to tell us what's happening. Yeah, Sylvia, there's lots going on in November. Um, 
MetAaron is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. From the 10th to the 18th of November, there'll be a spe- special exhibition about our National Weather Service in the Botanic Gardens in Dublin. This uh, is open from 9am to 4.30pm daily, and you can get more info on that at met.ie. On the 14th of November, um, astronomy.ie will be presenting a public lecture about the birth and the death of stars. Um, This is taking place at the Physics Department in Trinity College in Dublin, and it will discuss everything from a star's birth to its fiery death as a supernova. Um, For more info and to book, uh, just go to astronomy.ie. On the 15th of November at the Science Gallery, um, Jer Hayes and Emmanuel Ragnoli will be discussing Dublin's hidden water network. Mm. Um, as more and more people start to live in cities, the importance of water supply is becoming critically important in our urban areas. And um, this talk uh, will be run in conjunction with the Alchemist Cafe. And you can get more information and book at sciencegallery.com. Okay. Um, on the 16th of November, the Dawson Prize in Genetics uh, public lecture takes place at Trinity College in Dublin. Professor Corey Goodman is going to be describing his journey through academia into industry and his research into the self-assembly of neural circuits. Um, the free talk starts at 6pm and this is organised by the Irish Skeptic Society and you can get more info at their website. And finally, um, on Sunday the 20th of November, there will be a morning of birdwatching for beginners at Dublin Zoo. Um, those who attend will be able to learn about uh, the plumage of birds and their habitats, as well as how to spot different species of birds. The event is free for zoo pass holders and for children, but adults without passes will have to pay €10. Euros. And you can make bookings by emailing education at dublinzoo.ie. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Lenny. And that's it for another episode of Cybernia. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to our guests and contributors and thanks to Near FM. You can find us online at cybernia.ie, that's S-C-I-B-E-R-N-I-A dot I-E, or you can download the latest episode from iTunes. And we're also on facebook.com slash cybernia and on Twitter. And don't forget, you can always email us at podcast at cybernia.ie.